if you have sub $10 million of net worth, you're driving these diesel gasoline vehicles with your money. If you have, if you're wealthier, you're an institution, you're running around in a Tesla. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. My guest today is Joe Prococo, one of the co-founders of a fintech startup called Titan. Titan has raised tens of millions of dollars and has collected hundreds and millions in assets under management thanks to a very specific thesis. While some people want to just put their retirement savings into index funds and others want to try and day trade actively on sites like Robinhood and Webull, there's another population that wants a managed investment portfolio that doesn't just index the entirety of the market, has a thesis behind it, but is informed by real investment professionals. Same services that hedge funds offer, that mutual funds offer, has to be able to be delivered at a lower price. That is what Joe's company is doing, and that is what we discuss in today's video. We also discuss the building blocks of a fintech business, his background at Goldman Sachs, and a whole lot more. I think you'll love it. Here is my conversation with Joe Percoco. You're listening to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. So Joe, thanks for coming on the podcast, man. I'm excited to be talking with you. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Aaron. I know I've got a proper guest on my hands when you've got the mic set up, ready to go, despite the fact that you're running uh, some crazy, enormous company that's doing like 500% growth in ah, financial yeah. services. So I'm, I'm excited. Yeah, no, we're probably one too many podcasts where I didn't have the setup and you come in and it doesn't sound clear. Figure your guests deserve to hear us loud and clear, you know? Right on. So let's start on that that growth. You know, the the stat that the PR team gave me is you guys have 500% growth in the last 12 months, tens of thousands of clients, hundreds of millions of dollars in assets under management. That's candidly, you know, I have a, a, a mentor of sorts that I listen to and he says, you know, small businesses don't stay small on purpose, which is basically everyone wants to grow. Not everyone can kind of crack the nut of how to grow. So Joe, how are you growing? I think that's a great quote from your mentor. We should pick his brain for what other him or her, what other quotes he or she has. Um, yeah. How, how does one grow? It could boil. I, I often think like you need to think about like business, like microbiology in a sense, like what is the like molecule of a business? The molecule of a business, at least how I think about it, is just how do you delight a single customer so much so they're willing to open your wallet and pay you a little bit for it? And you just have to be relentless in trying to give them value and just delighting them in a way the current world does not solve their needs for. And so how does Titan fit into that? Because, you know, <laughs> we've we've seen, you know, GameStop and the Robin Hood mania of all these kind of day traders who are doing a gamified form of investing in their app. Plenty of people have been, you know, told by their you know, dad's accountant to just put it in Vanguard index funds and not think yeah. about it or use Wealthfront. Uh, we, we've, we've interviewed Andy Ratcliffe to talk about Wealthfront and that form yeah. of kind of wealth building. Titan slices <clears throat> the pie a little differently. We do. And it's funny is you hit on two of the three investing use cases that have been around for all of humankind. There's only three and you just cover two of them. So great job. The, the one is make it go away, which was invented by Bogle 
which was the passive revolution. Wealthfront is you know, a great player in that space. And it's largely a solve this investing thing for me. The second is get out of my way. I literally just want to do whatever the heck I want on whatever platform I choose, whether my uncle told me to buy the stock or I just really believe in this company. That's called self-directed brokerage. Number of different players do that. They're all just sort of new age versions of the Amsterdam Stock Exchange from way back when. And there's this third use case called investment management, which is show me the way. I want to give my money to someone to actively invest it for me. And there's a long list of old school players that currently have significant market share in this category, from Fidelity to T. Rowe Price to Franklin Templeton to State Street. It just goes on and on and on and on. It's the largest of the three categories. Um, it dictates the most capital flows, but no one has yet to say who will be the Fidelity for the upcoming generations, i.e. the authority of where their capital should go when they want them to show them the way. So that's what we're building at Titan. And that's at a very kind of generalized, broad level. Like all those brands that you're talking about, yes, they could, you know, hey, I want to play international. Hey, I want to play small cap. Hey, I want to play these different kind of arenas. They could take you there if you wanted to, but the brand that's being mm -hmm. built is really, you know, come here with your assets, Retirement may seem daunting. These other financial goals may seem daunting. And, and there is a degree to which almost like the, mm. the messaging, the branding kind of um, reverberations, you know, you can understand why someone outside of the industry wouldn't really be able to delineate those different brands too much because it's a similar message that they're all trying to pass along. Totally. And it's um, honestly, I, I, I feel for people who are trying to figure all this out from the outside. Like I, I was there. I didn't you know, despite going to Wharton, working at Goldman Sachs, I didn't figure out how to invest my first dollar until I was 26. The very, very meager savings I had after paying off some student debt, it all just lived in a Bank of America checking account. Like it's the most paralyzing thing in the world, trying to figure this all out, all the jargon, everyone's competing for your attention. And it was just sort of part of the reason why I started this whole thing. I was like, this, this shit sucks, frankly. Like there needs to just be a way easier, more modern tool to do all this. So, so what makes it easier? Give us more, give us more <clears throat> detail. Yeah. So if you think about like the status quo, what is like the hallmark vehicle? If you want to give your money to someone to manage it for you in an active way, like you were saying, Hey, let's go put 10% of your capital in these small cap stocks. Cause I think they're going to do really well. Or, Hey, Aaron, let's go check out China internet. Those could be the next big thing. Like the American internet revolution. What's the primary way you do that? There's a few vehicles. One is ETFs. Those are fine, but they're inherently black box. They often have layers of fees. You're never going to communicate with the person actually running the ETF. Another thing is called mutual fund. You're probably getting goosebumps or allergies just thinking about putting your money in a, in a mutual fund. Everything I just described about the ETF is sort of like way worse from a mutual fund standpoint. And so with us, we said, okay, core human behavior is there. People deserve to be able to give their money to an expert to do, go find the best small cap stocks. And then what we, what we said was it just needs to be mobile first. It can't be a black box. Aaron deserves to have a direct line to whomever is running the thing. And so with that, it's sort of like our clients, we say, used to be seated outside the stadium, go figure it out yourself, but we'll take your money in this ETF. With Titan clients, we bring them courtside seats. Um, so we send our clients, you know, an in-app video saying, hey, we just invested you in XYZ stock, Instagram stories, like they get it. We show them full transparently how their money's in real time. So it's just sort of uh, going back to what I said, like why 
it's honestly really tough just to try to do this whole thing, be it ETFs, mutual funds, you name it. So it really sounds more like you've kind of tri- triangulated this point between, and, and if this is a miscategorization, you know, kick me and tell me I'm Give I'm it a whirl. Here. Let's see. <laughs> um, yeah, at one end of the spectrum, you have hedge funds, but hedge funds have, you know, they, they're trying to solicit institutional investors where they can get just enormous sums to go and invest. And the average Joe Schmo, like, I, I don't know what you had. I'm sure you were doing pretty well if you were, you know, out of Wharton and Goldman in terms of income that you could potentially invest. But most of the characters, the you know, the millennials between 25 up to 40 or, or past that don't have some, you know, super high bar to go start investing in a hedge fund. Right. And at the other end of the spectrum, you have a much more kind of conventional financial advisor that's collecting a, a, a fee, but playing almost more of the social game of, hey, you know, relax, set a habit, let me coach you, and less of the, I'm a tactician as it pertains to yeah. a real investment thesis. And I don't want to disparage all financial advice, no, you're there's hitting a degree it. to which that's the game. And the two important points, which I want to separate, which you've shared, they're both exceptionally important. One is, so if you think about it, like, let's say Aaron has money to invest. First question, where should it go? Second question, let's go get it there. So where should it go? Number of different ways, institutions and people figure that out. And the institution, let's say like Harvard Endowment, has their own internal team figuring out, okay, should we go, should we go invest in private equity in Latin America or should we like buy US stocks? They have their own internal team. A human being will say, let me hire a financial advisor to try to help me figure out where it should go. Then there's like, okay, let's go get the money there. If you're an institution, if you're a normal person, the menu you have is quite limited in terms of, okay, like where ultimately can your money go? Probably it's stocks-based, maybe a small cap ETF, you name it. If you're an institution, the menu has about a hundred more pages. It's like, hey, venture capital, hedge funds, private equity, and so forth. And so the the big thing that I at least was really personally frustrated by, I'm from a 30,000 person town um, in New Jersey called Hillsboro was that the menu was just different from like where I lived versus where I ultimately went to in New York. Um, so what we're predominantly trying to do is let's make the menu the same. All those, all the really amazing vehicles that institutions invest in with philosophies, long-term compounding, unique asset class exposures. How do we get that to everyday people? So we'll let other people solve for the wealth planning, the, the tax planning. Hey, Aaron, if let's say you're getting married, here's how we should think about your budget. What we're firmly solving for is where your money goes. Let's game, let's level the playing field on the menu by getting you access to the 20 pages you don't have access to. So, you know, in the, in the spectrum of, like you said, this is so complex for people trying to figure it out. And you, you reference Jack Bogle and the indexing revolution and the whole thing there that, you know, now fidelity beats the same drum is just we're cutting fees, okay. we're cutting fees, we're cutting fees before everything else, mm-hmm. cut those fees, pare them down to the point where I saw someone making fun of it, where it's like, you know, fidelity's trying to brag about this. It's like, it's literally uh, like a half of a, a basis point or something different. So it's like, at, at the end of the day, that's not actually making the difference on yeah. the outcome of retirement. Going down from a 2% fee to a, a 0.1% fee makes a difference. Yeah. But, you know, at, at some point you're, you're um, splitting hairs. So 
what, what I hear, you know, you're not positioning this. And, and I think it's okay. We do this with our own services at Piper where we say, you know, we're not the cheapest. We are also not the Maserati necessarily, but we are something in the middle that kind of satiates um, a number of these different needs. Kind of explain why it's not just a how much fees you're paying when you invest type of decision and how, you know, that although in index funds work for some people, why a different approach yeah. might be more relevant. Yeah. I'll answer this indirectly. The world, I, I see the world of investing and it's part of the reason why like I'm running so hard at Titan and like what wakes me up in the morning is I see the world as if you have sub $10 million of net worth, you're driving these diesel gasoline vehicles with your money. If you have, if you're wealthier, you're an institution, you're running around in a Tesla. And these are just fundamentally better vehicles that get you to different destinations, better destinations, but you just can't afford to get into it. And so for us, the primary question isn't even price. It's just this person who's driving a diesel cannot even fundamentally walk into the Tesla dealership. Like that is just like, it's just stuff I didn't read about. I saw all these PhD papers talking about like, Hey, like here's the optimized ETF with like three basis points. And it's like what that effectively, as I read it is like, this is the fastest diesel car we have on the market. And here's the miles per gallon. I'm like, you're literally missing the point. Like you're trying to optimize a diesel car. Like the elephant in the room in consumer fintech is the fact that if you're wealthy, you're not even in that room. Like you are just over there. Like there's no Robin hood. There's no GameStop. You've got your capital in a hedge fund or venture capital firm. You're sitting back when the market goes down. You're not scared. You're literally grabbing pennies to try to figure out how to buy. Um, and that's just a world I sort of like refuse to live in. Um, so it's why like we're moving really, really fast as a team and why we're just trying to get our product to market as fast as we can back to the whole like how, why is our company growing? It's I think predominantly because we're hitting on that nerve. So tell me a little bit about that transition, right? Because there's there's plenty of characters that at least from the outside looking in would say that that you kind of checked all the boxes of kind of conventional goals being accomplished. Graduate from Wharton, head to Goldman Sachs, work at McKinsey for a while. Um, you know, there's plenty of people that would say, I, I, I've kind of hit, I've landed at this spot. There isn't a next lily pad to get to. Those, those are the lily pads that people aspire to. Yeah. And so like we're, we're, um, like what wakes me up, let me know if I'm answering your question. Um, yeah. Like ultimately, I'm from a family of immigrants, Puerto Rican immigrants on the one side, Italian immigrants on the other. And so both sides of that are like super education focused. And we are going to create a very, you know, education focused family. We're going to do it right. We're going to be in America. And it's sort of like that immigrant attitude still carries with me to this day. And so and now you can sort of get the point where this whole dichotomy of, population A gets this, population B gets that, sort of like coming from a family of immigrants. You can see why that would like light me on fire. So yeah. it's what ultimately, it's ultimately how I just like realized what I needed to do and had the courage to go leave that whole track that you just described, which a lot of really great institutions, uh, really great firms that I think they're wonderful and I'm really proud of them as an American. But ultimately I said, okay, I, go, I need to go build what's missing. Um, and I, I felt a deep sense of calling to do it, believe it or not. So yeah, but still a lot of work to be done. I dig it. So there, there's a meme in certain, 
like channels of entrepreneurship. And, and the, the thing that's come to mind, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Andrew Yang, but before he was like running for president and mayor, he was uh, running a, a organization called Venture for America. And he wrote mm-hmm. this book called Smart People Should Build Things. And he talks about being a reformed lawyer, doing all these other things. And, you know, the the emergence of, you know, the best human capital that we have out of those kind of very, you know, high-end traditional professional services into different entrepreneurial ventures. And, you know, I, I feel like sometimes that idea gets taken in the direction of like, okay, we'll go, you know, buy a, a bunch of self-storage facilities or a trucking company or a construction company, which works is cool. But when I look at something like Titan, it almost seems like it necessitates the background that you've had in order to start it. Like most people without actually kind of seeing behind the curtain, like you said, at a place like Goldman, seeing those high levels of corporate finance would even have the legibility to go about like, you know, what, what are what are even like the component parts that go into starting a, you know, scaled consumer fintech play? Most people won't even have legibility into the, the pieces that are required. It's a totally great observation. And it's probably, I think, the biggest reason why it hasn't yet been solved is because once you're in, let's call it that back of the restaurant, you're like, I, I, this is comfy. Like, why would I ever leave to go back to the front? I have, I make, you know, one makes a ton of money back there. It's cushy. You got all the institutions lining up for what you offer. Like it's almost like pull up the rope ladder. Like now that you've made it. And, and just you know, the social status too. Like you said, your family was pushing you on the education, but even you meet someone at a bar and you say, I, I work at Golden, I work like that, like that yeah. is the lights on. Yeah. Um, and it's part of the reason why my family was like, wait, you're getting off this track. I thought like, <laughs> we, you know, do you realize why like grandmother came from, you know, Puerto Rico or why my Italian family came from Italy, like, hold on, like you're about to ditch all this. Um, but what was clear to me was that, you know, as you're saying, like oftentimes the domain expertise one has almost gets a sense of responsibility, almost how like you see a lot of these really great med tech companies are run by some of the best doctors and they just like infuse into the company, just like patient empathy in a way a doctor wouldn't otherwise, a non-doctor wouldn't otherwise be able to do. So same with Titan. Like one of the reasons why, and if you read our reviews, I think we've been able to nail the user experience is because like, I've literally been both sides. I like sit in every major product review and my voice isn't necessarily one saying, here's how we can complete this derivation of the product feature and this Y flow. But the predominant voice I play in that meeting is that is too confusing. Look at all these other products. People currently shoulder shrug at them. What can we do to push the envelope here to just blow someone away who has no education? That's like the predominant voice I play. And it's, I think it's like an important one. So going to your point, I think domain expertise is really critical for many different businesses that one seeking to start. Absolutely. So can you take us just into the component pillars of a consumer fintech startup? So, you know, we we cover all sorts of different businesses on the show, and we've talked with an office furniture wholesaler about how his capacity to increase the square footage of his warehouse is like this primary driver of his profitability and business growth. And we've talked with a a Haitian immigrant who started a trucking business. It's literally make enough to buy a truck, make enough to buy a second truck. And it's, you know, it's somewhat linear, but, but still fascinating to get an insight into what are the component pieces here? Cause there's, there's also, you know, you referenced medicine. Those are two of the more regulated industries as well. So I'm sure you need a a nice lawyer bill, but what else goes into it? 
Yeah. So for the, the, probably the overarching mental model, which you're hitting, and I really love is that, you know, every business in the world requires starting capital. You then go build something with this capital. You then sell it to people and you earn revenue. And then you have expenses, which are the people that you need to support it and market it. Every business goes through those same pillars. So for a consumer fintech side of things, you need capital to stand up the back end, let's call it like plug into the marketplace. It's called like a broker dealer entity. You need back end, you need capital to solve the regulatory equation and get registered. You need capital to hire your early engineers and designers to actually build the front end product. And then you build this mobile application, which is offered to the front end, like a normal customer. You have the back end, which let's say it plugs into the market, or if it's like a wealth app, plugs into a bank, you've built that. You have the legal and all the regulatory done. And then you also built all the back end things to accept accounts. Let's call that the like, okay, we've built an initial product. From there, the business side, you have to build it in a way that people want to actually use. Like a lot of, there's a lot of good consumer fintech businesses and a lot of bad consumer fintech businesses. The primary reason between good versus bad is often did you literally build something people want to use? It's not anything genius other than that. Um, are they paying you for it? You get revenue. And then your costs are usually, you know, you have really high gross margins because it's software. Your costs are predominantly the people that you keep to build the thing, maintain it, iterate, and then any marketing expenses one may have. So if let's say, how do you get people aware of your product? Is it referrals? Is it organic? Or do you have to go buy a ton of TikTok ads? If so, that's a major difference in the marketing line. And ultimately as a business, you then hopefully earn some profit over time. So that's like consumer fintech business in a nutshell. So it's, it's, I think apparent that, you know, those initial, the licensing with a broker dealer, um, the kind of initial standup of the product itself, that could be a seed investment, a small team that's grinding, that's hustling to get something that has a, a kind of sufficient, um, you know, capacity to it. It's very different than I think your recent, most recent round of fundraising was like $450 million valuation, not, not the totality that you raised. Um, is that kind of, that, that to me as an outsider seems like we're, we're getting close to the moment where let's, you know, pour the, the proverbial gasoline on the fire and marketing dollars to actually help this start to spread. Um, is that, do you feel like that's yeah. kind of close to where you guys are now? And what was the signal that, all right, it's time to actually do this. Yeah, you hit on the nail. What you first seek to do is the goal is to use, like ultimately from like a Warren Buffett sort of perspective, your goal is to build a business which generates high returns on capital. What that means in non-finance speak is you're going to go to the world and say, world, give me money because I'm going to create a lot of impact to it, to society and shareholder return. I will give you more back than what you gave to me. And so what you first do is say, look, like, I don't need a hundred million from you guys right now. Just give me a little bit so I can show you a proof of concept. If that proof of concept works, you go back and say, okay, I've now hopefully de-risked that I'm going to waste all this money on some business adventure that doesn't make sense. Look at this data. If we put more money in and flesh it out from a V1 to a V10, this could really be big. And then it's like, okay, we've built something amazing. Now we have to hit the turbo button. Let's go raise even more money to make this a really big brand and cement our market position. And so that's where we're at. So we're, you know, we built an amazing proof of concept few years ago. 
It then got a ton of scale without us even trying. People were just sharing it. And now it's like, okay, let's go take this from V5 to V10 and hit the turbocharge button. And I have to imagine, you know, part of the turbocharge is also bringing different offerings to the market, which we can talk about in a second. But I, I, the other thing that, you know, in traditional B2B SaaS is always one of the core metrics is the net revenue retention or the general retention of users. Mm. Um, and, and I have more experience looking at that from like a B2B SaaS standpoint where you're, you're trying to drive like, you know, net dollar growth because you're adding more seats, you're adding more usage, selling into a large org. Is that, is that relatively similar? Because if people yeah. have more assets under management, you're also going to have that net revenue retention. Yeah, you're, you're spot on. I would actually like hold the perspective that most businesses are more similar than they are different. And so even if like the language isn't exactly the same, the concept of, okay, like this business gets revenue and then it grows per customer equals good business. If it's the opposite direction equals bad, like that's actually just a fundamental principle that holds across like pretty much all businesses. Ours is the exact same. So ours, we get, you know, it might just be different on the time scale, which is you can get like, let's say like a, a Robinhood, for instance, you can get a lot of customers up front. And then ultimately it's okay. Like we believe that over time, they'll be able to monetize it. And so hence in the consumer land, people are more willing to put chips on user growth first before they talk about revenue, because they know it's like, okay, I've seen this story 10 different times. If you get users, you can then go cross sell them A, B, C, D, E. So hence, I know it's a given that net revenue will be there if you can go get users or what's called distribution first. So ultimately, it all shakes out to be the same, but probably the holy grail of a consumer technology company is how do you actually get people to be aware of you and shout from the mountaintop? So that's what's called distribution. And if you get that, usually if you're a software company, you have high gross margins. And if you built a good product, you have strong net revenue retention. So like those other variables fall into place. If you can actually get user growth, um, obviously I'm, I'm summarizing things very simply, but that's at least the pecking order. First distribution, then unit economics, then let's see, all right, if you figured that out, how big can this thing actually be? Is this a billion of revenue or is it like 10 billion revenue? And that's also kind of coincides with the different level, you know, there's seed investors who are more akin to those earlier metrics and evaluation points. And right. then later on, when we're talking about growth capital, they're more akin to those second order types right. of uh, calculations. Exactly. So like an angel investor will be like, do I think this, do I think this team can figure something out here? And so that often means like, is the team smart, smart and expertise enough? And does the space have profit? So like, even if their first product is not great, I know that it's just such a valuable space to be in. They'll figure it out. Then seed is like, okay, show me a V1 of your product. And do I think there's a path for you to get scale from a user basis? Then let's call it like a series B or series C investor will be like, okay, show me then the, the proof that you can go get distribution and what the unit economics could look like. And then ultimately, like when all the late stage strategics come in after a unicorn, they're like, all right, show me exactly dollar in, dollar out is what it's called. Like this company will go IPO and it'll, it'll dilute itself 10% on IPO. From there, it'll raise XYZ dollars. Those dollars will convert into Y amount of revenue. And so hence my stock price should be X in three years. So you've hit the journey on the nail in terms of like the evolution of metrics.
Yeah. I just listened to an interview with the Zoom Info um, CEO, Henry Shuck, who's also been on this podcast before. And he like he knows exactly $1 spent into his org, org translates into precisely how many dollars to. of, of uh, software revenue in the future. The Going Deep podcast is underwritten by Piper Creative. Shooting, editing, and publishing quality content is overwhelming. We make it easy so you can save time, build your brand, and grow faster. Say hello at pipercreative.co. So I got two kind of questions and then we can aim towards uh, wrapping up with the standard last two questions. The first is it's become common now for founders during these different fundraises. Another thing that, you know, outsiders might not necessarily understand is they take some chips off the table. In extreme case, you got Adam Newman at WeWork, who's taken like hundreds of millions of dollars out of WeWork as they're raising billions from SoftBank. But just, you know, as the company grows, a little bit of chips off the table actually allows for, you know, founders to be financially comfortable to go swing for the fences, which is what those investors want. With that money taken out, it's common for founders to now be investing in other startups. And if you think about it, it's like, you know, the best NBA players are the ones who can usually tell who the next star on the rise actually is before coaches, before scouts, because they know what it takes. So from that vantage point, given that you've now, you know, had your own startup and it's, it's on this upward trajectory, what have you learned from starting, operating, founding Titan that would inform a future investment thesis that you would have looking at potential startups to invest in? Great question. The whole, you, there's that question, like, what do you believe that others underweight or don't believe? So there's that old adage, like ideas are cheap, execution is everything. I'd probably revise the adage to ideas are everything and execution is everything. The reason, or maybe even controversially, ideas are everything, execution make it good enough. Reason being, if a business just starts from a good, like there's that old quote, like in the, in the, in the tale of a bad business versus a good operator, the bad business always wins. Yep. And it's just like the brutal reality of the marketplace. You could be the brightest human on earth. If you're trying to ride a crippled horse, it's going to go nowhere. And so the first is just thinking through this space itself. Like, is there value to be had here? What's the competitive dynamic of this space? Like, will you just get muscled out? Like, talk to me about the horse and the race you're trying to run. Even if your V, even if I disagree with however you're designing your V1 or your initial product, like, do I just believe you're in the universe of a good horse? And now I know a lot of people will say like team first or whatever, traction first. I'm very much a like thesis driven space first sort of person. And secondly, team, like, are you going to run through walls to iterate when it's not working or when you get data and you get like, you, you find a new competitive entrant, like what's your DNA? Like you are going to, like, I've had to run through a gajillion amount of walls. Titan almost died, I think like two times in our early history. And then from there, from like an early stage basis, that's all I look for. Later stage is about show me the traction. So the, i.e. be humble, demonstrate to me the data you've collected that your thesis about the future of the world is right. Because ultimately, like if you're running, if you're attempting to start a business, it's a bet on a future state of the world. Like I am saying the future of the world should be like X and I'm going to be the one to create that future. So by the time you should have data saying, Hey, just be, have humility, like just show me the data. And so like Mark Andreessen, you know, Andreessen and Cohen is investor on our cap table. What he usually says is as you get later and later stage, your, your investor deck should have less words and more numbers. It's like, do 
do I even need to explain my business? Look at the unit economics and the dollars in dollars out. You almost like don't even want to care. Um, so it be self-evident. Yeah, exactly. And so that's at least how I think about it. When I see, like, I see a lot of really great entrepreneurs, um, starting companies. And so I just try to push them where you're starting it on the right horse or the wrong horse. I dig that. Can you talk about either of the near death experiences? They both had to do with very, very early on when no one believed that we should exist. Believe it or not, there was a world pre Robin Hood success. And we were, that's when we were starting Titan, when still Robin Hood was like, oh, like, I think I might have heard of it. Remind me again what that does. That was like the state of Robin Hood's brand in, a, in American society. And we were like, oh, like, makes total sense Robin Hood succeed. There's only like three use cases. Everyone's focused on passive. Robinhood is trying to democratize self-directed brokerage. Someone will next go after Fidelity, which is the, the biggest prize in the room. And I like walked into a hundred different VC conversations and they laughed me out of the room every time. They said like, wait, like, isn't everyone just going to put their money in like an optimized ETF that's zero fee? And I said, like, it takes a very rudimentary understanding of capital markets to know like society would break down if there was no one to actually determine the price of stocks. Every IPO would be priced the same. Like that just cannot exist. No one, yeah, we just got rejected a lot. And, so said, uh, it, said another way, because that's an important idea that I don't think everyone grasps either. If 100% of the shares that were um, transacted in, in markets for equities were all in index funds, there's no price discovery because the index funds basically look in a very rudimentary way and say, hey, you know, the price of Ford went up, the price of GM went down. And so we just need to reallocate our index fund to reflect that price change. We're not making some sort of uh, concerted vision on both of their respective EV strategies over the next five years and what that could mean for future cash flow. Yeah. We, we live in a capitalist society and what people, everyone forgets is even with their hard-earned savings, it is a vote, almost like in a courtroom where the companies are the one coming up and your judge and jury. Does this company deserve my money or not? That one is doing exceptionally well. I'll give you my money very cheaply. That company is really struggling. If you, I'm going to give you money, you're going to have to pay me a really high interest rate because you're clearly doing bad things with it. The, 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 that's how capital markets work. And that's how literally capital flows from like places that have it to places that need it most. So it's why like, why like India is receiving a lot of venture capital investment, basically Indian society is saying, Hey, we're ready for a lot of capital. It's really quickly growing. You can make a ton of money. Hence a lot of capital flows into India. If the world was just one passive ETF, forget literally everything I just described. It's just you spray all of your money evenly across all the good and all the bad. And it forever just indexes to that. You give one chip to good company, one chip to bad, one chip to good, one chip to bad, capital markets break. So it was what ultimately gave us courage to just be like, we think everyone is wrong. But I said that humbly. I said like, we think everyone's wrong. So let's go ship a product to market and see what happens. And then ultimately it worked. But it did create it take a little bit degree of courage to actually go through that phase. Word. Well, that's awesome. Um, before we wrap up, I wouldn't be a proper podcast host if I didn't at least mention crypto because I feel like that's like almost the the cost of doing business in the podcast world. Um, so one of the offerings that you guys are also introducing is associated with cryptocurrency, and we're kind of in something of a. Uh, uh, 
short bull cycle here um, over the last couple of months, basically since the Bitcoin halving. So can you just talk about where that, where you as a company kind of think that makes sense in the context of a modern portfolio? Because another, you know, relic of the past is a 60-40 allocation. You got your bonds, you got your ex- equities, you're good to go. Mm. And we're living in a bit of a different world. Yeah. Uh, no, we we very much are. And what's key but what's key from a portfolio standpoint, i.e., where does Aaron put his wealth that he accrues, is you need to make sure like you have it in the right places to accrue the most wealth possible on a risk-adjusted basis. And so we feel the wrong debate is being had on crypto. People are currently having the debate, which is, will crypto exist or not? The right debate is what percent allocation should crypto be in your portfolio adjusting for this risk? And so where we shake out is we think crypto has a really high potentially for quality growth with incredible diversification across other asset classes. Like despite all of this crypto hype, like crypto is still early and it could provide what we say called venture capital asymmetric returns in addition to your equities or your stocks. And it could be one of the most uh, compelling long-term secular growth trends in the tech space. And so now the question is, okay, like what percent of your portfolio should you have in it? And then if it's like, okay, I should have X percent, usually most people will say anywhere between one to 5%, which of the assets should I pick? One could say, screw the judge and jury concept. I'm just going to get the whole courtroom, i.e. I'm just going to spray all my assets across whatever their index weight is. Others try to be more smart, which is what we're trying to do. So instead of, you know, everyone just buys a lot of Bitcoin, we're actually much more excited about Ethereum than we are in Bitcoin. So Ethereum is, Bitcoin was meant to be a digital currency. I mean, there's a few other applications. Ethereum is meant to be the operating system by which people build other crypto applications in particular in the finance sector. So for us, it's why we launched our Titan crypto product to do this discernment of judge and jury on behalf of the crypto space. We know it's complex. We know people are wondering all these ups and downs, what should I do? So we felt it was super right to have an expert in the room. Right on. That's why you guys have a business. People uh, can can hire the investment team from Titan. Yeah. Um, uh, Joe, this has been awesome. I want to ask the standard last two questions that we always do. Before I do that, anything else you're hoping to share today that I just didn't give you the chance to? No, you covered it all. Uh, honestly, this was a super fun combo. Right on. Well, if people want to learn more, uh, what digital coordinates can we provide for people to find out more about you, Titan? We- we just bought Titan.com in the spring. So go to Titan.com. I'm sure that that was not a small purchase. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> you can go to you can go to Titan.com. You can follow us on Twitter. If you want to follow me personally, you can go to my Instagram handle or my Twitter handle. So yeah, but Titan.com if you want to check us out. I thought you got a distinct last name. Joe, Joe is probably hard to come by, but Prococo, you probably Prococo, it means peach tree in Italian. So J P as in Peter E R C O C O. Yeah, Joe Percoco. Beautiful. Well, we'll link all of that in the show notes for this episode. It is in the app where you're probably uh, listening to this right now or at goingdeepwithaaron.com slash podcast for every single episode of the show. But before we let you go, Joe, I want to give you the mic one final time to issue an actionable personal challenge to the audience. Great question. I think what I'll share is what I did with our leadership team this morning, which was I asked them, what is your personal KPI for the week? And similar to home as a business, how you have KPIs, like what is revenue growth? What, like how many employees are we hiring? 
everyone should have personal KPIs. Mine is like number of weekday workouts I do at a normal time of day, like not like trying to squeeze it in at 7 a.m. or 10 p.m. And the goal is to hit two in like a five-day work week. So I would challenge the audience to think about like what is your personal KPI and and are you tracking on it? And, and those numbers being tied to, you know, whether it's your health or your, your mental health, how good you feel, if that has some sort of connection to your productivity, stuff like that all works together. I, I w- used to be very good about that. I have a two and a half week old. Um, so congratulations. Thank you. So all my KPIs are how frequently are feedings happening and, and are you sleeping more clean. than three hours? <laughs> exactly. Nice. Try not to think about the hours slept these days. Nice. That is that, that is another congratulations. That's awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Um, well, this has been awesome. Congratulations on, on all the success associated with Titan. Excited to see you guys continue to grow and impact people from an investing standpoint. And we didn't even mention all the cool investors. You mentioned Andreessen Horowitz, Kevin Durant, Odell Beckham, Will Smith, all these cool characters. Uh, it was a pleasure to talk with you and have you on the show. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me on, Aaron. This is special. We just went deep with Joe Prococo. Hope you're not there. Has a fantastic day. Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to the end of my conversation with Joe. If you found it insightful, then I would definitely encourage you to check out a different fintech startup philosophy that we discussed with Andy Ratcliffe a couple years ago when he introduced his service Wealthfront, which is much more focused on those index funds and a slightly different model for retirement investing. Investing is difficult. These decisions are difficult. I empathize with the challenge of trying to make sense of it dearly. But hopefully these interviews will help you gain a little bit more perspective, have your money do a little bit more work for you, and be a learning process along the way. Thanks for listening. Connect with Aaron on Twitter and Instagram at AaronWatson59.